You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Good morning. Thank you guys for coming here and celebrating with us today and just coming to worship the Lord. We're so glad you guys are all here. Um, My name's Shannon, and I'm just going to lead us in a time of prayer. Um, We're just really thinking about the persecuted church this morning and everyone that um, has been affected in Afghanistan and all over the world. And um, just remembering 9-11 yesterday, the 20th anniversary, and just all the families that are still hurting and grieving from that. And so um, we're just going to go before the Lord and lift those cares up to him. So if you would join me in prayer. God, we just come before you and we just thank you, Lord, so much that you are so good and you're so gracious and you're holy and even when things don't make sense and when the world seems to be in chaos and a mess and there's wars and there's killings and we just feel so afraid lord we know god that your word promises promises us that you will be with us that you will be near us that you're close to the brokenhearted that you count every one of our tears God, there's so many people right now that are hurting so bad. They're so alone and so afraid. Um, They're scared for their lives, Lord. They know so many family members that have already been taken. They don't know what to do, God. But Lord, we know that you know what's going on. We know that you care for them. We know that you love them. And God, we just ask that you would pour your peace over each person right now, God, that is hurting specifically. um, God, the people in Afghanistan that have just been so persecuted. God, we know that there is a reward for them in heaven that will last for eternity. God, I pray that their eyes would be fixed on you, that during this time of complete fear, that you would just surround them, Lord, that you would give them strength and peace and courage, that you would fill them with an unexplainable peace that we could never get on our own and in our own strength, Lord, that only comes from your spirit. God, I pray that you would just um, awaken the church, Lord, and just have more people Um, rising up, Lord, to pray for them, that every day, God, we would be on our knees lifting them up, praying, Lord, that the persecution would stop, but even if it doesn't stop, and for those that are still being persecuted, God, that you would just be so close to them. And Lord, I know that it's not just Afghanistan, but it's churches all over the world, Lord. Right now in America, we are blessed that we're still able to worship you freely, but that's not the case in a lot of the world. And I just pray, God, that the church would remember that every single day there are believers being killed for your name, Lord, for your glory. And I pray that you would continue to give those Christians strength, that they wouldn't fear, that they wouldn't back down, that they would remember that your truth lasts eternity and that there's a hope for them. And God, I also just specifically lift up those that um, right now are just really, really hurting and um, just remembering all of their loved ones that passed away during 9-11. God, would you be near them? Would you please give them a hope? And um, in some way, God, if they weren't already saved or didn't already know you, that you would be able to show them truth and that they would be able to look for something that has a deeper meaning, something that lasts for eternity, God. We love you so much. We thank you, God, that you've given us this opportunity to come together and worship you. 
We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, all right. Good morning. How's everybody doing? That's it. That's all I get. I'm going to need a lot more interaction this morning. All right, first things first, uh, I think we failed in some of our discipleship of you all um, because you don't know how to clap on rhythm. And so we're going to uh, hold a class afterwards. My buddy Daryl, I'm going to ask him because he's got great rhythm uh, to, to give you guys a class in that because uh, clapping for Jesus is awesome. Um, so uh, thanks for being here. My name is Bill, one of the pastors here, and we're so excited to dive in this morning. Um, I don't know if you remember where you were 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I remember I was actually coming, I was in college my freshman year. I was coming out of the elevator from my dorm room into the lobby, and there were a hundred people, hundred students packed into our lobby watching the TV, and they all started coming over to me and hugging me um, because I was from New York, and they thought that uh, my family was being attacked, and, and so I, it was just this, like, something that we would say is out of a movie, right? You're just walking into something, you're like, what is happening right now? Um, and I think that in some ways, that's why we love entertainment and movies so much, right, is, is there is a, a piece of reality that kind of hits us, um, and there's also this, like, good versus evil that we see that just wages war, and, and it, there's a reality to that. Like, we see this all throughout history. We see this all throughout the world. We see this um, all throughout every, like, I mean, you think back to Superman and Spider-Man and all of the, the, the Marvel comic heroes, right? There's this battle between good and evil, and we're enamored by that because there's a reality to it. Um, and that's what is so um, crazy about life is that when the things that seem maybe surreal or the things that seem like they would be found in a movie actually start to happen here and now. Um, and it just, it, it gets kind of crazy. And it, and it feels like almost like an out-of-body experience because we can watch a movie and leave it and be like, oh man, that movie was epic. Things blew up and, and the hero won. But then when you're living inside of it, and it's still happening, um, we don't know what to do with that. And, and today we're actually going to be looking at a story um, that really hones in on good people and bad people. But it doesn't end the way I think that we think it should end, at least for the context of the people here in the story. Um, it doesn't at all end the way they think it's going to end. And the problem is, is that for most of us in this room, and if not all of us, I think we would place ourselves on the good people team, right? Like if we were going to choose a side, we were going to we choose the good side, right? We want to win. We want to be on the good team. Um, and we make this case that I'm a good person, right? We're here at church, right? Or automatically, right? That's like a check on the good people box, right? Maybe you participated in the backpack drive. Uh, and so we, we come, we, maybe we help people, we serve people. Husbands, you're like, man, I cooked and did the dishes last night. What? Right? And so you're, you're, you're putting yourself automatically, like, I did good things. But something we see in Scripture is that, that we all fall short of something. Because when measured up to other humans, I guarantee you, you're going to find somebody that's worse than you. Always. Right? There's always going to be someone that's done something worse than you. And so you don't have to be like 90% good. You just got to be like 51% good, right, to be on the good people team. But measured up to God, to be in his presence, to be in relationship with him, what is required is to be 100% holy. 99% misses it. And I think that for us as humans, when we begin to place ourselves in the good team category, 
we miss out sometimes on the beauty of, of the gospel, the beauty of why Jesus came, why he lived li- a life that, that was perfect so that he could be sacrificed, so that he could be murdered on our behalf. And if, if we're going to put ourselves in the good people category, we don't actually need him. Our morality is what's going to save us. But if we recognize that there actually is no good team or bad team, that everyone, according to Scripture, all, the Greek word there, all, that includes you, that includes me, have sinned and fall short of God's glory. To be in relationship with him. To, to interact with him. There is this huge chasm called sin that separates us from God. And what we're going to see today It doesn't matter what team you put yourself on. What matters is Jesus. You excited to dive in? I'm pumped. Open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 9. I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says, our sin nature is repelled by the purity of God's nature. These two natures are incompatible. The visual here is like two magnets that you try to get together, that um, if you think about magnets, what opposites attract, right? But what happens when you have two same polarizations? They repel one another. So when we as humans begin to say, no, our morality is what saves us, and we're, we're, we're good, then our goodness and God's goodness begin to clash because that's not how we were created. We were created to fully depend on him and him alone. And so we get to look this morning at the beautiful absurdity of mercy. Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 9. This is actually the story of Matthew, so the writer of this book. This is his story. It says this, as Jesus passed on from there, so uh, just a little bit further up in verse 1, we see that Jesus gets in a boat. He crosses over to his own city. So he's now uh, in, in the city of Galilee, right, Capernaum. He saw a man called Matthew. Two other passages of scripture that talks about this story. His his name was actually Levi before he met Christ. So he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. He's a tax collector. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house with Matthew, at Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came And were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders of the day, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the right, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I continuously fall short of your glory. God, right now, I am tasked with the responsibility of handling your word. God, that is a weight that um, I can't take lightly, God. There is a message, Lord, that you have placed inside of your word that you desire for us to hear this morning. 
And so for every single person that is here, God, people that may tune in online, God, I pray that it is your word that would pierce their hearts, bones and marrow, and it would stir affections, God, for you, not just so that we can get a get-out-of-hell-free card, but that we can be transformed into your likeness so that we may know who you are, your love for us, and how it impacts every single moment of our lives. So God, forgive me where I fall short. Forgive me for where I begin to waste words. Right now, God, in this moment, I pray that even now you would speak to my heart. You would speak to our hearts, God, so that we may be changed and transformed by you. In your name we pray. Amen. Man, this final statement. For that time and for that place and for that culture, to the audience that Jesus is saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and, learns with this, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is actually honing in on a passage from the prophet Hosea from chapter 6, verse 6. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea 6, 6, where God is accusing the people that their love is like dew on the grass. He's saying it's there for a brief morning hour, but then it's gone, and all that's left is the form of empty burnt offerings. That's what the prophet Hosea is saying. And Jesus quotes this not only to, for the people to hear that are sitting at the table that are considered the sinners and the tax collectors, but to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who would have known what Hosea had said. And to say that would have been absurd to them because they're going, yeah, but that's not relevant in this situation, Jesus. Like, you're, you're, you're not understanding this. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're not understanding this. I desire mercy not sacrifice. See, in that culture, the tax collectors, they were the bad team. So there were these modern, or at that time, these terrorists, the Romans, that came in and started oppressing the Israelites, the Jews. And and they are are ruling with, with an iron fist. And then what they would do is they would recruit people from within the cities that lived there that were their people, right? Jews or or Gentiles, but they were, they were their people, and they would charge them with collecting their taxes. So it would be like, you know, the, me being the Romans coming in saying, Jim, I want you to go to our church and collect the taxes for the Romans. And then what these tax collectors would do is that they would lie and cheat and steal from their own people. And so they were super wealthy because they were getting paid well by the Romans, but then they were cheating their own people. So they'd go over to Chris and they'd say, hey, Chris, you know, uh, your taxes are, now maybe Chris owed 100 bucks, and they would say, uh, you owe 120 bucks. And he'd be like, wait, 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 I thought it was 100. And he'd be like, no, no, 120. And, and he's like, well, I don't have that. And he's like, well, I'm going to throw you in prison then. And so he would have to come up with the money. He'd give it to me. I'd give the 100 that he owes to the Romans and keep the 20. That's what these people were known for doing. Not only were the people being oppressed, but now their own people were oppressing them, joining those that were terrorizing them. And so... You have these tax collectors that were considered bad. And then in that day, the Pharisees were actually considered the good people. Right? They were the religious leaders. They were the ones that were the pastors and the elders. They were the ones that were teaching the law. They were the ones that were upholding the law and actually fulfilling the law. Not perfectly, but they thought they were. 
And so people looked up to them at that time. And so if you're going to give a story or you're going to create an analogy, normally what you would do is you would point out the good guy, Superman, and then you would point out the bad guy. Who's the opposite of Superman? Lex Luthor? There you go. Um, right? And then you'd point and you'd say, okay, like, like here's where it's at. But, but actually, he's flipping things on its head right now. And people don't know what to do with it. See, these good guys, what they did is they distorted the law and the sacrificial system so that they can establish their own power. They became this elite group of people who actually were doing the same thing that were that the tax collectors were doing. They just had a religious piety to it that made it seem good at the time. But they were both bad sinners and their human nature formed. So in one sentence, and here's what I love, Jesus levels the playing field for everybody that could hear him. That's what made it absurd. And that's what made it beautiful. He completely levels the playing field between the people that everybody thought were good people and everybody who thought were bad people. He was saying, it has nothing to do with your morality. It has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. It's about me, Jesus. And so he's saying, I, God, I desire to save you by my work, my holiness, my sacrifice, not your work, your effort, or your performance. Jesus is saying when it comes to salvation, your morality, your status, your ability, it doesn't factor in at all all. And they hated that. Because they built, the Pharisees built their whole leadership structure around their ability, their performance, and their morality. And so their prestige, their success came from what they did. And one sweeping move, Jesus says, it's not about you. See, you cannot solve the sin problem by being a good person. You can only solve it by being God. And so there's no hope for those who insist on believing in their own self-righteousness for salvation. Man, we have what feels like a gajillion babies being born right now in this church. Where my mom is at? Raise your hand, right? Let me, let me ask you something. Other than being maybe cute and cuddly, what do your babies bring to the table? What do your infants bring to the table? Are they cooking dinner? Are they cleaning the house? Man, they, in an effort category, in a progress and performance category, they bring nothing. And in fact, they just create chaos. They poop, they eat, they just take and take and take and take. They're selfish. Babies are selfish. And so are we. But here's the beautiful absurdity of mercy. Jesus came to save sinners. <laughs> this is great news. This is why we showed up here this morning. Because there is a God who loves every single person in this room, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are right now, whether or not you've put on a mask and act like you've had it all together for 40 years. He has come to bring you life. 
and give you life to the full. See, when you come here and you put on that mask and you act like you have it all together and you've lived your life like that for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 20 years, whatever it may be, like, who are you fooling? You're not fooling God. And I promise you, you're not fooling the people around you. You think you might be. If you ever meet somebody, you're like, yeah, they're acting like they got it all together, but something's off. Why? Because we fail to realize and recognize that we need a Savior and that we're helpless and hopeless without Him. And so, if you say, no, you know, you know Bill, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not me. Like, I, I actually am a good person, doing good things. Like, if that's you this morning, you're placing yourselves on the Pharisees' team. And I promise you, that doesn't end well. You want to read it. So, what do we see here in this passage of Scripture? Well, we see that Jesus came to save sinners. Matthew's a tax collector, right? We already talked about that. And Jesus' call is to follow him. This is more than acknowledgement. Right? When Jesus says to Matthew, come follow me, like, this is a big deal for Matthew. Matthew built his life upon being a tax collector. All of his money, all of his success, all of his prestige, all of people's respect, maybe begrudgingly, but they respected him because they had to or else he'd throw him in prison. Everything he built his life upon was based on the fact that he was sitting there in that tax booth. The moment that Jesus said, follow me, what did Jesus ask of him? He said, all of the stuff that you built your life upon that you, you find worth in, you're saying, it's not worth anything. But what is following me? And what did Matthew do? He left everything. He left all of his money, all of his wealth, all of his prestige, all of his success. He left it all so that he can follow this teacher that not a lot of people know about that was sleeping in makeshift tents going around telling people that the kingdom is coming, doing some miracles here and there. Even the disciples didn't really know what was going on here. Like, they're like, all right, Jesus, you seem a little crazy, but I'm being like a magnet, drawn, drawn to your goodness. There's something there that, that I'm being drawn to. There's no, like, round two for a tax collector that leaves his post. Think about it. If it doesn't work out with Jesus... Right, Matthew gets up, like the people around him are like, you're crazy. And he's like, I know. And he goes and he starts following Jesus. Like, this thing doesn't work out here. Like, he's not putting ex-tax collector on his resume. Because he ain't getting that job back. And no one else is hiring him. So he's leaving it all. Because he's realizing and recognizing that that is worthless. There is nothing that he had in the life that he built that was worth anything. And he realized that. In that moment when Jesus called him, he's saying, hey, I know who you are. And I want you to follow me. Jesus came to save sinners. And then what does he do? Jesus transforms sinners. Creates them to be disciples. Those that follow Jesus alone. I mean, just to 
Think about Matthew's life. Like I said, in two other passages of Scripture, um, two other Gospels, he's actually referred to Levi because that's what they would have known him as, as a tax collector. But even Matthew himself, when he's regurgitating his own story, doesn't use his old name. The other disciples that were writing about the stories, they wrote about Levi, who then was transformed into Matthew. But Matthew no longer saw his old identity. It was gone. It was wiped clean. He no longer lived that life. How many of you are holding on to your past and living and existing as if you were still that person? Christ didn't come so that you can live the rest of your life to be that tax collector and regret all those. He's created to make you something new. He's created to transform you. And Matthew, by just using his name, Matthew, his transformed name, is showing to us that Jesus transforms sinners. He doesn't leave them where they were. He doesn't say, you were once this, like, yeah, I was Levi, and then here's all the bad things. No, 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 I'm Matthew now. I am Matthew now. I have been changed and transformed by the beauty of who Jesus is. He said, follow me, and I followed. And I didn't look back. Man, there is such beauty here. And then what does Jesus do? What does uh, Matthew do? He threw a banquet. Right? He went public with following Jesus. Again, Jesus wasn't like the, the new hotness to follow. Right? He wasn't the one that everybody's all of a sudden going, no, I want to follow that guy. Everybody was still kind of a little bit like, eh, we don't know about this guy. Like, we know the Pharisees, and we know these guys, and we know, like, here are the teams, good guys, bad guys. But Jesus, I don't know, he's doing some wonky stuff. He's, he's teaching us the scriptures, but in a fresh new way that we've never even seen before. And so now all of a sudden, like, to follow him, and so what does he do? He goes public, and he has a banquet and invites all of his friends invites all the people that he would have known that the Pharisees didn't like. That all the, all the people that would have been on the bad team, he says, hey, come over to my house. I want you to meet somebody. So what does Jesus do? He says, nah, man, I, thanks for the invitation to come to your house, but like, I've got I've to build my own name here. I've got to protect who I am and my name. He goes and he reclines at the table. That's an intimate setting. He goes and spends time with them, sits with them in a way where he would have gotten to know them, where they would have swapped stories, where he would have pressed into the deepest parts of their heart. And the Pharisees didn't like it. They actually hated him, so much so that they started this process of trying to murder him. Because what did the Pharisees do? Think about it. The Pharisees tried their best to stay away from the dirty people, from the bad people, from the sinners, from the tax collectors. When they would walk through the streets, if they came even near those people, they would cross to the other side because they wanted to show, we're too good to be around you. And Jesus is reclining with them at their table? What is he, crazy? Doesn't he know? And what does Jesus say? He says, it's not those who are, have no need of a physician, those that are well, but those who are sick. Those are the ones that need the doctor. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Your work, your effort, your energy. For I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus wants us to remember and know this morning that he came 
to earth. He was perfect and holy, living in paradise, living in heaven, living for all of eternity in perfect relationship with his Father, being worshipped day and night by angels and seraphim and by elders and beings. This is the picture we see in Romans. Day and night, he is being proclaimed holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He leaves that to wrap himself in human flesh, to be born an infant, helpless and hopeless, to have his diapers changed, couldn't get his own food, just to grow up so that a group of self-righteous zealots, Pharisees and people who were threatened by him could kill him on a cross? Why? Because he loves you. Because he knew that the only way to level the playing field between the good guys and the bad guys was to give up his life. Because all have fallen short. All have fallen short from the glory of God. He knew the only way to restore relationship was to sacrifice himself because the debt needed to be paid. We needed to be pardoned. We could not stand before a holy God in any way, shape, and form, no matter how good you are. Even 99.9% still falls short. So, the good news that we are reading this morning is that God not only came to save sinners, but then he transforms sinners so that we can follow him and then lead others to Jesus. I love what Tully Tavigian says. He says, the Christian message is not about the wood ladder, the wood of a ladder, so that we can climb up to God, but the wood of the cross on which God came down to us. After all, Christianity is not for good and strong people who try hard. It is for bad and weak people who finally give up and throw themselves on the forgiving mercy of Jesus, who has already done everything needed to the praise of his glorious grace. Are you depending 100% fully on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Or are you still trying to earn your way? Do you think you deserve it? That's what the prosperity gospel says, right? Try harder. Do more so that God gives you more. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that you've got nothing. You bring nothing to the table other than your sin. And God loves you in that. And he receives it and gives you a new life, a transformation of your old identity. And he doesn't remember it anymore. You may struggle with dealing with the things in your past, but God doesn't. When he looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus. That's why he died. He sees Will, my son. He sees Lauren, my daughter. That's what he sees because of his son, Jesus. So this, this is good news for all sinners. So if you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now's the time. That's what the Bible says. It says now is the time for salvation. What does it take? It's not a checked box. It's not a special way of prayer. It's surrendering your life. It's saying, God, I can't, but I know you can. I love even what we're going to talk about next week, the centurion that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. You may not have all your questions answered. And I promise you, after walking with Jesus most of my life, I still don't have all my questions answered. You won't. If you're 
If you're going on your, your latter years of life and you think you've got it all figured out, you don't. And I know that all of you that I would talk to, you would say, we don't. Because the more you realize and the more you know, you realize that you need, you have questions. They're not going to all be answered. But he came to save sinners. And so what it takes is surrender, recognizing that you can't figure it all out. But he has already figured it out in the person of Jesus. Now, this is also good news for all Christians. Now, I want us to know this. Because even yesterday, I was sitting with my wife, and we were in the backyard. Man, I was just having a bad day. Everybody ever have those? And my, it was actually to the point where my wife looked at me. She's like, how are you going to get up tomorrow and preach? Yeah, that's why I love my wife. Love and truth. And what did she do in that moment? She told me five steps to be a better person and to do more better things. No, she said, hey, babe, you may want to get away with Jesus. You may want to sit at his feet for a little bit. Why? Because all the things that I was wrestling with, I was being super cynical. I was being very frustrated at everybody else in my life. Ever get there? Right? Everybody's out to get me. She's like, hey, it's not about them. She's like, where's your heart at? Like, that's the wrong question. She's like, what is? What's the right question? No, it's the right question. The gospel is for us as Christians. Every day, every hour, every minute, every second. Because even though we are saints in the eyes of the Lord, even though we are fully 100% adopted into his kingdom, we still wrestle and struggle with sin. And we still mess up. We need to remind ourselves of the beauty of the gospel every single moment of every single day. Because we can't do it without it. God didn't die on the cross and then go, all right, you know, Sherry, pick, pick the ball up. It's your turn now. Figure it out. You know, pull up your bootstraps, get to work. He said it's finished. And every time you try to take matters into your own hand, who likes control? This guy. God's saying, stop it. Let it go. He's saying, I've already finished it. Trust me. For sinners, it's for every single person that calls on the name of the Lord and is saved. And this good news, it's meant to be shared. That's the beauty. That's what I love about baptism. I love that about baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is a public declaration of an inward faith. So just like Matthew calls all of his friends to have a banquet with Jesus, like that's what baptism is for us this day. Like in today's like. We're saying, I believe, and that's what Matthew was saying, right? He said, I just left my life of being a tax collector. Right? There was probably a tax collector shortage at that point because of Matthew's story. Because he invited all his friends who were tax collectors to his house to have a banquet with Jesus. And by just doing that, he's saying, I believe that this is the Savior that has come to give us life and life to the full. That's what baptism is. To invite your friends, to invite your family, to publicly proclaim you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. It's holding a banquet so people can come and feast on the goodness of Jesus. This good news is meant to be shared. So, have you been baptized? Because <laughs> if not, man, there's a beautiful opportunity for you to share with all of your friends and family who Jesus is and what he's done for you. 
It's meant to be shared. It's meant to have people in your home. It's meant for your coworkers. Hey, you know the angry HOA president? It's meant for him too. And here's what I think we can miss. Our world's in chaos. We know that. Especially Afghanistan right now. I mean, things are crazy. The Taliban. Ruthless, horrible people. What would they need to do for God to save them? This was hard for me this week. Because the Lord put that question on my heart and I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. I don't even know if I should bring that up. It's easy to share the gospel with people that we love. Friends, family, people we like. But what are those that we hate? I don't know where you stand politically, but what if you don't like the current president or the former president? What are you wishing upon them? Or are you desiring for them to come to know Jesus so that their lives can be transformed? I mean, I just, these are the questions that the Lord brought to my heart this week. He said, what would the Taliban have to do to receive forgiveness from God? What would I feel if God chose to forgive them? What things would they have to do to receive the full forgiveness of God? What rituals, ceremonies, offerings? What would, what would I require of them for them to do so that they could be saved? That's what Matthew was doing. He was aiding terrorists. Persecuted people, imprisoned them, ravaged his own community. And in one moment of beautiful, absurd mercy, Jesus offers him full pardon. He receives it. Are we praying for Afghanistan, not just for people to be safe and protected, but for the Taliban to come to know the goodness of Jesus so that they may change what they're doing? For the crazy HOA president that keeps nagging you about your dirty roof tiles? Are we praying for the salvation of his soul? For our president, vice president, and governors? Are we praying for them or are we just complaining? Church, how do we stand up against a wicked and crooked and twisted generation? The way we stand up is by falling on our knees and praying that God would change and transform the lives of people just like he did Matthew. That he would call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. How could people know the good news if we don't share it? Good news is meant to be shared. If you're a believer this morning, he has called you, commanded you to share it. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, man, share it, because it is good. Amen. Father, we can so quickly and so easily create a system of legalism and fundamentalism where we begin to put human logic boxes around who you are and what you've done and who's it for. God, I pray 
that we would begin to see ourselves in light of the identity that you have given us, which is a son and daughter of the Most High. And as we see ourselves as that, God, I pray that we would go and share that good news, knowing that we didn't earn it, knowing that we don't deserve it, but that you have called us out of the tax booth into being a disciple of you, to follow you, and that our role, God, is to grab everybody that we know, everybody that we come in contact with, and try to bring them along in knowing who you are. So God, I pray for a power that comes from your Holy Spirit, that burns a fire in our hearts, in our minds, so that we may go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, not just our little communities, but God of the world. And if we feel like we're helpless and hopeless and we can't do anything over there, then we have minimized prayer. God, I pray we don't do that. I pray that we would fall on our knees even though we may not be able to fly a plane over there and get people out, God, that we can start praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, that we can start praying for those that are oppressing people like the Taliban and many other people around the world, God. Many other groups that are hurting and terrorizing people, God, that we can start praying, Lord, bring your salvation to their hearts and their minds and their souls. Bring faithful brothers, faithful sisters who will stand up no matter what uh, weapon is, is placed against their heads, God, that they would stand up and that they would share that you are the only way, that you are the only truth, that you are the only life, so that someone, God, may come to know you. God, for too long, America has been a lethargic church, going through the motions. And so, God, I pray that you would create a fire in our bones. And God, what is dead, I pray that you would make alive. God, if we are giving our lives to anything in this world that brings success, that brings prestige, that brings notability, I pray that we would lay it at your feet, God. I pray we would leave it and that we would follow you and use the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the resources that you have given us for your glory and your glory alone. God, help us stop building our own kingdom here on earth. We exist for another kingdom. I'm sorry, God, when I do that. But thank you for the forgiveness that we receive at the cross. God, change and transform us now. It's in your name that we pray.